0: This week on YAP, we're chatting with bestselling author and psychologist Daniel Goleman, most well-known as the number one expert in the world on all things emotional intelligence. Daniel is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Emotional Intelligence, and he is credited for first introducing the term emotional intelligence to millions of readers across the globe, effectively bringing EQ to the mainstream. Daniel is also the co-director of the Consortium for Research on Emotional Intelligence in Organizations, and he is the co-founder of Cassell, Collaborative for Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning. In addition, he's also the host of the podcast, First Person Plural emotional intelligence or eq is one of the most important soft skills you can have today having a high eq means that you can build stronger relationships regulate stress and anxiety and even solve problems more successfully emotional intelligence is crucial in and outside of the office and guess what eq is totally learnable and dan is here to tell us how In today's episode, Dan and I will yap about why emotional intelligence matters. We'll learn about amygdala hijacks and how they can prohibit us to act rationally and think clearly in high-intensity situations. And we'll also discuss steps on how to develop our emotional intelligence and so much more. Having a high EQ is a quality that leaders, employees, entrepreneurs, and everyone in between needs to thrive in our current world. So if you're looking for a marketable skill that will improve all aspects of your life, you've come to the right place. Hey, Dan, welcome to Young and Profiting Podcast.
1: Well, thank you. It's really my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: I am super honored to have you on the show today to talk all things emotional intelligence. You are literally the number one expert in the world when it comes to that topic. And so we're going to go super deep on EQ today. But before we do that, I did want to get some insight on your background. It's pretty fascinating that you actually have a lot of interest in the Eastern world and it impacted you as a child. And then later on in college and graduate school, you ended up traveling to India. And so there's no doubt that these different perspectives and getting exposed to meditation and mindfulness influenced your perspective on psychology and your work later on. So talk to us about how you first got introduced to Eastern studies and what it was like growing up for you.
1: Well, I grew up, you know, my parents were uh, college professors, and my father's best friend was the uh, founder and head of the Oriental Studies Department at Berkeley. He was a guy, fascinating guy, who had spent a lot of time in Asia. And I think osmotically, I got some interest there. My He and my father had met in a Sanskrit class as graduate students, so they had Eastern interests in common. And... Uh, I think the big changer for me was when I met Ram Dass. I don't know if you know the name Ram Dass, but he was a really important cultural figure for my generation. He had been uh, a professor at Harvard, and with uh, Tim Leary, he, he'd been a big prosthetizer for psychedelics, and then went to India and uh, became Ram Dass, not Richard Alpert. I met him right after he returned. And he'd become a serious student of Eastern disciplines. Uh, and uh, he got me to go to India. I, I ended up being there for two years and studying Eastern systems of thought and working with the mind as psychologies. And this was a really radical thing to do back in the day. Today, maybe no one's going to blink. But in, when I was doing it, it was, what? You know, you're like... You, that doesn't make sense to anyone on my faculty, but I, my interest was meditation. And the the generation of people who founded like Spirit Rock and Insight Meditation Society and brought mindfulness to America, like John Kabat-Zinn, Joseph Goldstein, these were personal friends of mine from those days. And um, we were doing something by being interested in mindfulness and meditation then, that seemed really um, beyond the fringe.
0: Yeah, because that was like the 1970s, right? And even just traveling to India, I think, was a big deal, especially for someone that young, right? Uh, so what was it like when you in the 1970s when you started meditating and all right. that?
1: When I got to India, I found a lot of people like me, young Westerners who had mostly gone overland. It was like a thing. You did that in those days. And uh, they were there because they had spiritual interest too. A lot of them have been like lifelong friends. There's one guy you might have heard of, Krishnadas. He's he's a famous singer now because he sings Indian, what are called bhajan, their chants. at He's very popular in the yoga scene. He was a guy I went to India with. So uh, people who were in that first wave came back and started doing things like yoga studios, singing Indian chants. Uh, mindfulness, meditation, that then were like you know, totally beyond the fringe and now are mainstream. Businesses are doing mindfulness. You know, schools are doing mindfulness. It's not, uh, not a revolutionary thing anymore. But at that point, it was. My dissertation, I went back to Harvard uh, as a graduate student. My fellowship to India was from Harvard, actually. Uh, And I uh, did my dissertation on meditation and stress. Very timely topic today. Back then, people couldn't understand why I would put those two things together. Made no sense. But now it's been totally corroborated, like, oh, yeah, that was a good idea.
0: Well, yeah, now it's like totally normal. But back then in the psychology world, especially, it it wasn't well received, like to talk about meditation and how it can change your brain. And they just thought that was kind of hogwash, right?
1: I, I was saved because there was one guy in the medical school, Herb Benson, who had done a study of uh, blood pressure and meditation. And he agreed to be on my dissertation committee. So because someone from the medical school said it was OK, then I got to do it. But it was... It was a little nip and tuck there for a while. Uh, And so when I graduated, I was really interested in uh, theories of consciousness and the mind and Eastern theories, meditation. Uh, But there was nowhere in the world of psychology faculty that I belonged. So I went into journalism and I ended up being a science journalist Uh, before I wrote emotional intelligence. By the way, for the record, I didn't come up with the phrase emotional intelligence. That's a friend of mine, Peter Salovey, who's now the president at Yale. He and a graduate student wrote a little article in a very obscure journal called emotional intelligence. And at the time, I was in the science desk at the New York Times. And my job was to read even obscure journals and see what was new and interesting. And I thought, wow, what a great phrase. That was how I got to write the book, Emotional Intelligence.
0: Yeah. And so I know that you weren't the one who coined the phrase, but you really made it popular. I mean, you wrote the book in 1995. It was a New York Times bestseller. It was translated in over 40 languages. And I feel like the masses came to know about emotional intelligence from you. So you really set off a global movement there. How did that feel when you released that book? Did it take off right away or did it kind of build up to take off?
1: In anticipation, I thought, you know, I better sell another book before that book flops. (laughs) I had no idea it would be, you know, it was on the cover of Time magazine. Uh, It got huge press because the people were ready for the idea that there's a different kind of intelligence than IQ that matters enormously for how well you do in life. That's emotional intelligence, how you handle yourself, how you handle your relationships. It makes all the difference. So if you, uh, you know, if you look at engineers, for example, this is new data, and you ask engineers to rate each other on how effective they are as engineers, it turns out there's zero correlation to their IQ and very high correlation to their emotional intelligence. The person you work for, the boss you love, is someone with emotional intelligence. The employee that you want is someone with emotional intelligence. They manage themselves well. They keep their eye on their goals. They're positive no matter what happens. They recover from stress. They empathize. They tune into other people. They get along with other people. They're great on teams. You know, this, this is the kind of person you want in your organization. And by the way, it's the kind of person you want in your spouse.
0: Yeah, 100%. I mean, emotional intelligence is such an important quality, especially, you know, in 2022 and beyond. I feel like as people are looking for soft skills and technical skills get automated, emotional intelligence is more important than ever. But let's rewind back to 1995, when you first put out this book. What was the history of emotional intelligence before that point? And also, why was it so innovative at that time?
1: Sure. So the book, Emotional Intelligence, is highly speculative. There was not really any research to speak of on emotional intelligence per se. There were con- there was converging data. Actually, I drew a lot on the decade of uh, research before 95 on the brain and emotions, which was a new field then. Uh, and uh, that was really the basis of my book. And I, brought, I wove in every other finding I could come up with, you know, or find. It, it It took a lot of work to do. However, once I put it together, it struck a chord. And since then, there's a ton of research on emotional intelligence. In fact, I've just agreed to do a book pulling together 25 years of research on the topic uh, because there's a critical mass now that shows, yes, this is the kind of this is the set of abilities that leaders need, entrepreneurs need. This is the set of abilities that you need to do well, uh, no matter what it is you do. And this is the set of abilities that organizations need to, to uh, encourage. As you say, AI is encroaching on human abilities, but I don't think it'll ever take over the emotional intelligence space.
0: Mm, yeah, it is very, very key as as things go on. So let's talk about the reason why you put out this 25th anniversary edition. You released a 25th anniversary edition in 2020. Why did you decide to do that? I know you wrote a new introduction. What what had changed over 25 years that you needed to reintroduce the topic again?
1: Well, a couple of things had happened in 25 years. That's a long time. First of all, business had embraced the topic. There's a mini industry of consultants and uh, testers and so on in emotional intelligence. It's really everywhere. You mentioned that it's global. Uh, I've been doing a lot recently, for example, in Brazil, because the topic has taken off like crazy there. Latin America, Asia, Europe, it's all over. Uh, And that's new since nobody heard of it in 1995. Another place that uh, I'm happy to say that it's really found footing is schools worldwide. There are many, many schools that now teach what's called social emotional learning, which is, you know, the four parts of emotional intelligence, self-awareness, managing yourself, tuning into other people, putting that together in social scale and relationships. Kids are learning this in school. And I think that's very important because there's a neurological window of opportunity The emotional and social circuitry of the brain does not become fully mature anatomically until mid 20s, which means you can help kids shape how, you know, that circuitry, get it right in the first place. Instead of people past 25, if you want to get better, you can, but it takes a double effort because you have to overcome the bad habits you Mm learn and then replace them with good ones. Uh, And that, basically is possible, but it takes a lot more effort than it would have if you had started this in kindergarten.
0: Yeah. So speaking of learning, it's, it's pretty interesting to me that, uh, that EQ, emotional intelligence, you can actually learn it. It's not something that you're just like born with and you're stuck with like IQ is. So talk to us about the difference between EQ and IQ in terms of how you can actually improve your EQ.
1: Well, IQ pretty much is stable throughout life. It's an index, some say, of how quickly you can learn something. And people are are born, you know, we have genetic differences. And some people inherit pretty quick speed and some people have a less quick speed. And it may vary for math and language and so on. But basically, whatever your IQ is as a kid is pretty much what you'll have through life. However, emotional intelligence is learned and learnable throughout life. And that's—I find that very encouraging because, you know, let's say you're um, starting a company or you're a manager somewhere, and you realize that um, you know you need to get better at listening. Poor listening is like the common cold of empathy. You know, people just like, you're you're thinking too much about what you're going to say, or you interrupt the person and take over the conversation. That's bad listening. So in order to overcome that, you need to be A, motivated, ask yourself, do you really care? Do you want to do this? If the answer is no, give up. If the answer is yes, you keep going, And you come up with a specific plan. This is important because this is really habit change uh, at a granular level. So you're going to be mindful. And every time you notice that you're about to take over a conversation or you're not really listening, you remind yourself, oh, no, I'm going to do it better this time. So you're both inhibiting the habit that didn't work and you're encouraging a new way of doing it. And you want to do that as often as naturally occurs. It might be with your partner. It might be with your, you know, kids. It might be at work. It doesn't matter. The brain doesn't distinguish. But the more you practice and the more often you practice, the stronger the new habit becomes. And, uh, you know, neuroplasticity is the name for this in neuroscience. The brain, uh, sometimes it's called use it or lose it. The more you practice, uh, behavioral sequence, the stronger the neuronal connections for that become. That's what we are doing at a brain level when you practice a new way of being for emotional intelligence, and you can do it at any point in life.
0: Let's hold that thought and take a quick break with our sponsors. What's up, Yap Bam? Being an entrepreneur and working remotely definitely has its perks. And I know a lot of you listening in are in the same boat as me but do you really take advantage of being able to work from anywhere? I know I typically don't, but thankfully this past holiday, I finally decided to make use of my work flexibility for the first time ever. My boyfriend and I decided to pack up and leave to the West Coast to spend an entire month working from home in the sun. We got a super cute bungalow in Venice Beach with a fenced backyard. The change in scenery, the fresh air, and the slower pace helped me to inspire some really cool new ideas for my business. And honestly, I'm feeling really refreshed and ready to rock in 2024. And who helped me make these remote work dreams come true? It was Airbnb. And Airbnb has come in clutch for me time and time again. Whether it's finding the perfect Airbnb home for our three-day annual executive team get together or booking a vacation where my extended family can fit all in one place, Airbnb always makes it a great experience. And you know me. I'm always thinking of my latest business venture and I've been begging my boyfriend to start hosting our place on Airbnb. And finally, we're gonna start. So many of my successful friends host on Airbnb and it's such an amazing way to generate passive income. So to start, we have a plan to start spending more time in Miami and we'll be hosting our place to earn some extra money when we're back on the East Coast. 2024 goals and I'll keep you updated. A lot of people don't realize that they might have an Airbnb right under their own noses. I was pretty surprised myself. You can Airbnb your place or spare room, even if you're out of town for just a few days or weeks. You could do what I did and work remotely somewhere else and Airbnb your place to fund your trip. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host to find out how much your home is worth. Young and profiters, it's never been a better time to be an entrepreneur. With inspiration at our fingertips and powerful tools at our disposal, the possibilities are endless. And when it comes to tools that can truly make your business grow, there's one name that always stands out, Shopify. <laughs> Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business from the launch your online shop stage to the real store with the door stage. And even the, did we just hit a million orders stage? And if you're in that, I need to sell more with less stage, Shopify magic is your AI super powered sidekick ready to whip up captivating content that converts from blog posts to product descriptions. Not to mention Shopify also is the home of the best converting checkouts in the game, 36% better than other leading commerce platforms. Shopify turns browsers into buyers. It's no wonder Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And you can sell whatever, whenever with Shopify. Push pleated pants with Shopify's in-person POS system or monetize mindful meditation. I sell my LinkedIn Secrets Masterclass through Shopify and they've made my life a breeze. It took a couple days to set up my store and I just get to focus on what I do best, creating great content and marketing my product. So don't stress if you're new to this commerce thing. Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. And remember, whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com profiting. And that's all lowercase. Again, go to shopify.com slash profiting to start growing your business today. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash profiting. And I have to imagine like what you're saying right now reminds me of what a lot of people say related to meditation, that meditation actually helps you create it's like that neuroplasticity can happen with meditation. Can you explain the connection between meditation and emotional intelligence?
1: I don't know if there's a direct connection. I would connect it in a, in two places. One is uh, meditation and mindfulness, or is applied self awareness. Self awareness is the first domain of emotional intelligence. You're getting to know yourself intimately. The second has to do with empathy and presence to the person you're with, because it helps you pay full attention to the person in front of you. And that's the basis of rapport. If you don't have that attention, if you're looking at your phone, not going to have, you're not going to have rapport with a person. So those are two ways I think it helps, but there are others too. For example, uh, my PhD work was on meditation and stress reactivity. And I found that people who meditated wasn't that they didn't react to stress but they recovered more quickly and now that's been very well established over 25 years of studies that people who meditate regularly don't keep that thing that upsets you in their mind hour later a day later or middle of the night later (laughs) they can drop it and that's one thing you practice in meditation and i did a book called altered traits with a friend of mine from graduate school richard davidson who's now a Neuroscientist at the University of Wisconsin, and we looked at all the best studies on meditation, and it's very clear that there's a dose response effect, meaning the more you do it, the better the benefits are. And we see that as being uh, due to that practice effect. That is, the more hours you put in, the more the more stronger the circuits for meditating become. And basically you're reshaping your brain. And when he studied yogis, these are like Olympic level practitioners, uh, he found that the brains actually operate differently than most people's brains in, in very good ways.
0: Yeah, it's super interesting. Meditation is so useful in so many ways. So I do want to make sure that my listeners get a really good foundation of emotional intelligence. So how would you describe an emotionally intelligent person?
1: Well, let's go through the four parts. Uh, the first part is self-aware. An emotionally intelligent person has self-awareness, which means they know what they're feeling, why they're feeling it, how it's shaping, how they perceive the world, and uh, what they do or what their impulse is to do. They also have a view of themselves that fits how other people see them. Uh, you know, we find that people who... Uh, have a big gap between how others see them and how they see themselves don't develop emotional intelligence well but people who have very little or no gap turn out to be pretty emotionally intelligent then the next part of it is how you handle yourself self-mastery if you will and this has to do with dealing with stress and today everybody is stressed out of their minds do you carry it with you does it multiply or can you drop it and leave it behind and go on to the next thing uh that's the emotionally intelligent way of handling it are you able to stay positive no matter what happens do you see uh do you have a growth mindset you see yourself and other people as able to get better not just dismiss yourself or others as you are now uh and um uh, are you able to keep your eyes on your goals, whatever they may be, despite the distractions of the day? Very important. You wouldn't be doing what you're doing now if you didn't have that, by the way. Correct?
0: Yeah. Oh, I can self-motivate uh, any time of the day, any <laughs> any, any minute, any hour.
1: Exactly. exactly. <laughs> to have a successful podcast, you need that drive to achieve your goals then the third part of emotional intelligence is empathy tuning into other people Uh, there are three kinds cognitive knowing what they're thinking how they see the world emotional knowing what they feel because you feel it too and then empathic concern which means you care about them it's not just that you know what they think and feel but you want what's good for them and as i said earlier this is what you want in your partner uh, in the people you work with, in your boss, in your employees, you want people who care about other people. Uh, you know, the brand me, only me, it really doesn't cut it. it. It turns out to be selfish. Then putting that all together, how you manage yourself, how you see your awareness of yourself and other people into your relationship skills, very important part too... Are you able to persuade and influence people to come around to your point of view if, if you need to? Can you inspire them to give their best effort by articulating from your heart to their heart a shared sense of meaning and purpose? That's very powerful if you can do that. Uh, are you a good team player? You know, do you get along well with other people? Can you say the uh, the thing that needs to be said even if it isn't pleasant Just right now, by the way, there's a difference between being nice and being kind. I think being nice just means do whatever will help you get along. And it's not actually that helpful. Being kind might mean bringing up that one thing that needs to be said, even though it's uncomfortable in the moment. Uh, And, uh, you know, good teams, high performing teams have that social contract with each other. They can do that with each other. And people who are mostly intelligent will do that too, naturally. Uh, And then there are things like being able to help resolve conflicts. Uh, That's that's sometimes a tough one. So, you you know, there are all these different aspects. I call them competencies that are based in emotional intelligence that actually research shows make people outstanding performers in the workplace. So if you're going to be an entrepreneur and start up your own organization – Or if you're going to uh, join an organization, be a manager, you want to be on a ladder to leadership, these are the skills that you'll need.
0: Oh, yeah. 100%. So I feel like some people get emotional intelligence a little bit wrong. They think of it as I need to suppress my emotions, like emotions are bad. And I think some people think that if they just eliminated emotions, they'd be this like perfect, logical human being and rational and make the best decisions. But emotions actually have a lot of value. So can you talk to us about the value that emotions have?
1: Let me say, emotional intelligence is not being a robot. Emotions are important signals to us from ourselves. Memo, I'm getting sad. Memo, I'm a little anxious now. These are memos to ourselves. I'm getting angry. It's really important to know what your emotional reality is. On the other hand, there's a critical choice point After you know and acknowledge the emotion, which is what you do and say, there you want to be skillful. So, you know, in these social emotional learning classes, SEL, one of the things I love is a poster that's on the wall of the classroom. It says, if you're getting upset, remember the stoplight, red light, yellow light, green light, red light, stop, think before you act. Very important. That means take that choice point and think of what you, yellow light, think of a range of things you might do and what the consequence might be. Green light, pick the best one and try it out. This is good advice for a five-year-old or a 50-year-old, frankly. You know, life is full of those moments when we're, we have this impulse to react, but, you you know, sometimes uh, you're sitting at the keyboard And you experience what's called cyber disinhibition, meaning if you were face to face, you'd never say what you're about to send that person. Happens too often, but because you aren't, the brain doesn't get a feedback signal from facial expression, tone of voice from the other person. You're going blind. So very often we send things, a text or an email that we regret. The hallmark of an emotional hijack where your worst emotions make you do something is that you feel bad about what you did. You feel guilty or regret or remorse. I I wish I hadn't said it. I wish I hadn't done it. I wish I hadn't hit send. You know? So having that pause point, this is where mindfulness is very helpful, by the way, because that helps us recognize the pause point and give us an internal range of choice that we wouldn't have otherwise.
0: Yeah. Well, let's stick on this for a second. What happens to our brain, like anatomically, when we're in distress, when we're super anxious? Like, let's say, let's use that example. I just told somebody off in an email. I didn't think. I just got angry, hit the send button. And now, you know, what what happens to our brain in those moments?
1: Okay. So let me get a little technical here. Uh, The emotional centers have a structure called the amygdala. The amygdala does many things, but one of it is that it's the brain's radar for threat. In uh, prehistory, the amygdala helped us survive. You know, that rustle in the bushes could be something that eats us, so we better run. The Amygdala today has the same wiring. It has a privileged position in the architecture of our brain so that if it perceives a threat... It can take over the thinking brain, the prefrontal cortex, the executive center, the boss of the brain, just behind the forehead. The executive center is where we make good decisions, where we comprehend, where we think rashly, where we plan. Uh, but the amygdala is just rife with anxiety and anger. It has the feelings that make us want to do something right away. And if it thinks there's a threat, and by the way, today it's reacting to symbolic threats, this guy's not treating me fair. How could they, you know, leave me out of that or whatever it is? Those are the things that trigger us today. But we have the same biological reaction. So the amygdala freezes the prefrontal cortex and it often makes mistakes about whether or not there's a real danger. And it has a hair-trigger decision role. It would rather be safe than sorry. So it makes us do things like send that email because I was so mad Rather than realize that I'm really mad, pause and think, well, now what should I do?
0: So we have this thinking and this feeling brain, right? So the feeling brain, I think people also call it the reptilian brain, right?
1: Well, the reptilian brain is actually below the mammalian brain, which is where the emotional centers are in, in that model of the brain, but it doesn't matter. It's it's ancient brain. You know, the, the thinking brain, the neocortex, one theory holds, is an add-on, it's an accessory to the emotional brain to help us survive. was a different way of thinking about thinking. Uh, Because in evolution, the emotional brain is what helped us make it from day to day.
0: Yeah, because you actually can learn from your different memories, right? Like, so if you touched a hot stove when you were a kid, You learned from that memory and you never did it again. And you remember the emotion tied to that memory, right? So
1: here's another thing about amygdala hijacks, which I was describing to you. One of the things that shifts is your hierarchy of memory. So you're going to remember the time you touched the hot plate uh, as a two-year-old more than uh, all the things you can do right now that would have a better outcome. That's why you need to pause. Because your impulse is going to be whatever knee-jerk response comes from that emotion.
0: Yeah. So, like, basically, even if the circumstances are changed, your gut reaction is going to be, you know, stove is bad, even though, you know, stove can cook your food. (laughs) Exactly. Super interesting stuff. I mean, let's talk about how we can start to get a better handle of our emotions. What is the first step in developing our emotional intelligence?
1: Well, I think the first step is what I was mentioning earlier, which is to assess your own motivation. Is this really a goal you care about? Because the reason it's important is it takes time and it takes effort. I have a colleague, Richard Boyatzis, who teaches at Case Western Reserve. He has MBA students and he takes them through a learning process for emotional intelligence, but it takes three to six months. However, if they complete it after three to six months, their automatic response is the new way of doing things, the better way of doing things. He's gone back and assessed them seven years later, wherever they are, and had people who work with them evaluate them to get an honest, you know, reading of how they're doing. And he finds that what they learned back then... Is still the case. They still implement it that way. So, emotional intelligence learning, if you do it right, really sticks. So, the first step is to ask yourself Does this matter to me? And if the answer is yes, then go ahead. Second step I, I would recommend getting uh, other people's reading of what your strengths are and where you're limited in this domain. The reason is that you can fool yourself just evaluating yourself if you have a blind spot you will not see it by definition other people can see it Uh, and maybe you have a good friend or friends who will help you think this through if you work in a company they may have what's called a 360 assessment uh, where people who you choose will evaluate you anonymously and you'll get the data aggregated gives you a profile of strengths and weaknesses and by the way I have an instrument for doing this. It's called the Emotional and Social Competence Inventory. It's a 360 for the competencies of emotional intelligence. But there are many, many 360s. Many organizations have their own. But I would recommend that as a second step. And then look at the feedback. This is delicate. Many people take it as a judgment or criticism. Actually, you should think of it as news to use. Almost never in life do you get a candid assessment like this of what your strengths are and your limitations. So this is golden information, and you can use it to think, where would the biggest bang for the buck be for me? Maybe it's listening, as I said before, in which case you would develop a specific learning plan. You do it one thing at a time. You don't try to take on the whole of your emotional intelligence. It's overwhelming. Do one one at a time. And so let's say you want to be a better listener and you have a plan. Whenever the opportunity arises, I'm gonna listen the person out and then say what I think they said, then say what I say. That's the new habit. It makes you a good listener. And then the last thing is you practice at every naturally occurring opportunity. Those are the steps to improvement, I would say.
0: Yeah, reps are are definitely key in all of this. So a lot of this is about understanding your emotions, self-evaluating. So what about inner dialogue? Is there a right way and a wrong way to kind of speak to ourselves when we're trying to understand our emotions and kind of self-regulate?
1: I think the wrong way is to say, I'm stressed out, I'm anxious, and I'm angry and frustrated, and I'm a bad person because of it. In other words, the worst thing is inner judgment, self-judgment. Uh, The much better way to handle negative emotions is to acknowledge them. I'm feeling anxious right now. What can I do? I'm feeling angry right now. What should I do? That's a much better way to react. So I would say self-blame, guilt, self-judgment is the wrong road to take. Acknowledging feelings, saying, okay... Hello, anxiety. Here you are again, my little friend. Here's what I'm going to do. And uh, there are a lot of ways to handle anxiety. Many, many ways. Meditation is one. Yoga is one. Find out what relaxes you. Another thing that your listeners might want to check out, uh, I have an assessment of what are called stressors or hassles to refreshers. Think about your day. What part of your day allows you downtime? Do you take your dog for a walk every day? Do you spend time with someone you love? Uh, Do you uh, go for a walk in nature? These are all things that put you in what's called a parasympathetic mode, which is when the body rests and recovers, as opposed to the sympathetic nervous system arousal, which is anxiety, anger, frustration. And our days, you know, the way things have gone have too much of that. We need to have a balance. The body was designed for the balance. This is called the Personal Sustainability Index. Maybe you can put it in your show notes for people that want to check it out.
0: Yeah, I definitely will. And since you're talking about anxiety, I love a good productivity hack on Young and Profiting. And I found out that anxiety and performance are actually related. Can you talk to us about the upside down you and how anxiety and performance are interrelated?
1: Well, I would say that uh, you need to make a distinction right away between good and bad stress. Useful anxiety like anticipatory anxiety, I've got a test, or I'm giving a presentation, or I'm going on Shark Tank or something. That's stressful. But the anxiety about it mobilizes you to prepare. That is so useful. That's absolutely essential to succeeding. However, if the stress becomes overwhelming, it's unremitting. You never have a chance to recover, you know, those refreshers I was talking about. You get emotionally exhausted, you burn out. That is bad stress. So... The better, the good use of anxiety and stress is when you see it as helping you get ready for a challenge. That's golden. The bad stress is when it's just wiping you out and it doesn't help you recover at all. That lowers your immunity. That makes you an anxious person. It makes you irritable. It makes you do snap decisions that you regret later. Uh, so make the distinction right off the bat.
0: We'll be right back after a quick break from our sponsors. I want to talk to all you employers out there and let's talk about company culture. At Yap Media, we have a super unique company culture. We are all obsessed with excellence and we even call ourselves this really cute name, Scrappy Hustlers. We're all scrappy hustlers at Yap Media. And my team is growing fast and hiring is a pain in the butt, especially if you're looking for A players that are going to roll up their sleeves. But luckily, when it comes to hiring, I no longer feel overwhelmed by the search for the perfect candidate because I use Indeed, the ultimate hiring platform. Indeed's matching engine always presents me with a pool of high-quality candidates that match my job description to a T. If you're tired of drowning in your hiring pool, Indeed is here to rescue you. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging your candidates, making the entire hiring process a breeze. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. I've hired some of my best employees at Indeed, some of my best scrappy hustlers. With over 140 million qualifications and preferences analyzed every day, Indeed is constantly learning from your hiring preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets at actually hiring your perfect match. Join the ranks of more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that have already chosen Indeed to hire great talent. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash profiting. Just go to Indeed.com slash profiting right now to support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash profiting. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Young and profiters, I've got a fun fact for you. Did you know that by 2030, over 85% of the jobs that will exist haven't even been invented yet? And that's why we need to acquire new skills and stay relevant and adaptable. By embracing lifelong learning, we can future-proof our careers and our businesses. That's why you've got to check out Economist Education. Economist Education provides online executive education courses tailor-made for professionals just like us, crafted by The Economist's own editors and special experts. Economist education courses are designed to sharpen your professional skills in key areas like data storytelling, critical thinking, sustainability, and so much more. I highly recommend checking out the Economist education course, Business Writing and Storytelling. It's packed with valuable practical advice on how to inform and persuade through writing reports, social media, presentations, and beyond. The best part, these courses are online, flexible, and self-paced, lasting anywhere from two to six weeks. You're guided by expert tutors, You'll dive into a mix of videos, podcasts, texts, quizzes, and weekly assignments. Plus, you'll get a three-month digital subscription to The Economist to support your learning journey. Economist Education provides access to online forums where you can network with peers around the globe. In a world where knowledge is power, Economist Education empowers you to lead the way. Economist Education is an incredible way to stay ahead in business. And I've got a special offer to get you started. Get 15% off any course only available by going to my special URL, education.economist.com profiting and then enter the promo code profiting at registration. This offer ends on March 31st. So don't wait for 15% off. Go now to education.economist.com slash profiting and use code profiting. Again, this ends on March 31st. If you want 15% off, you've got to go to education.economist.com slash profiting and use promo code profiting at registration. with code profiting free. I, I mean, I imagine these interviews are always like a little bit of good stress for me. You know, you stress out, you study, and then it just happens. And
1: <laughs> it's like being in school, right? You got the test.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, so, a couple more questions in relation to kind of self regulation. How do we self motivate? What are your t- best tips for that?
1: I would zoom out from self motivation. And look at your sense of purpose and meaning. Does this really matter to you? That's the deeper motivation. If this fits your sense of purpose and meaning. And by the way, I've just seen some really interesting data that suggests it doesn't matter what your job is or your role is. If you have a strong sense of your purpose, you'll find a way to make that job or role fit your purpose. Having a sense of what we call purposefulness is a great motivator no matter what you're doing the the weaker motivators turn out to be things like salary promotion they they'll give you a little bit of a boost for a while but then they they don't really matter that much to you so it's what's called an inner motivation intrinsic motivation is the best way to get yourself going See how what you're thinking of doing helps you get to where you want to go in the long run. That's the inner motivation.
0: Yeah, that's super helpful. So another mood lifter you talk in your book that you actually say is kind of like an oxymoron is a good cry. So a lot of people think that, you know, you have a good cry. You actually feel better. Talk to us about why that might not be true.
1: Well, there's another theory uh, and data both ways, which suggests that the more you practice any behavioral sequence, like crying, is behavior, the uh, stronger the pathways that support it become. So, it may be that you know letting your anger out giving yourself a cry, a good cry, may make you just more susceptible to anger and crying. So that's the way in which it may not work. On the other hand, there's a catharsis theory, and I'm not going to take a stand here. The catharsis theory says, let it out, have a cry, and then you'll feel better afterward. And I'm not sure that we really know which is right. So I think which is right for you is best.
0: Yeah. You're just going to have to see what works for you. I don't know. I feel like sometimes I feel better after I cry. Let's just get it all out. I I think men and women are different about it too, I'm sure. So something else that I want to talk about is how to actually recover from an argument. So I think this is really hard for people. You know, they have a bad argument and they want to just like get over it. What's the best way to do that?
1: I would say that the recipe for getting over an argument is the same as getting over any negative emotion, which is dropping it, acknowledging it, and letting it go. And you may need to sit with it for a little while, but you don't want to stew in it. You want to go on. And going, this this is very interesting. This is one way meditation helps you. Because in meditation, no matter what kind you're doing, the universal instruction is as your mind wanders, bring it back, which means drop wherever your mind went. That's practice in dropping it. And remember the neural principle, the more you practice something, the stronger your ability for that becomes. So getting over an argument, which may really shake you up, by the way, because you care about the relationship and the person, Uh, getting over the argument is a tough one, but I think it, it demands more of your ability to shift mood, which can be practiced and, and can be strengthened. And shifting mood, by the way, you can do in two ways. One is to replace it with something that makes you feel good. Uh, like, okay, I had an argument with so-and-so, but I'm going to uh, spend some time with my pet cat, who always makes me feel better. That, that's one way the The trouble with that is after you doing the cat, the argument may come back <laughs> over and uh, didn't
0: solve anything yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: and maybe the better way is to uh handle the emotion by acknowledging it and then letting it go, learning to let go
0: mm. and I have to imagine, especially with relationships, empathy has a lot to do with being good at this relationship management.
1: Let me say there's a third strategy, which you just alluded to, which has to do with empathy, cognitive empathy, understanding the other person's perspective, saying, oh, well, maybe this argument doesn't mean he doesn't like me anymore. Maybe it's because of this thing or that thing that's happening in his life or her life. And this is kind of what's called cognitive reframing. And that can sometimes be very helpful too.
0: So talk to us about the different, there's three different types of empathy, as far as I understand. Can you tell us about the three different types and how you use them?
1: Well, I mentioned it earlier. Cognitive empathy means I understand your perspective. I know how you think about it. And it might be really useful in getting over that argument you just had, as you can think, well... Maybe she got mad at me because of this other thing that doesn't have to do with me, really, has to do with her. Emotional empathy means that I feel what you feel. And it's because the brain is wired to lock in and form an emotional bridge with the brain of the person you're with. It happens instantly and unconsciously, spontaneously. You don't do it, it just happens. That makes you able to feel what that other person feels. Uh, And you may have a lot of emotional reverberation after that argument because that person is upset, you're upset. So you want to be able to manage that emotional after effect better. And then there's concern, caring about the other person. So you had an argument with that person. You want to help yourself but do you want to help the other person too? If you really love that other person or you care about that other person, the answer is probably yes. And this may help you come up with a strategy for mending the relationship in a better way.
0: It's so interesting because you think about people who might not care and, and those are like the really bad people in the world right who who know all the ways they can manipulate people with emotional intelligence but then they don't have that one piece of empathy in terms of they don't care about other people.
1: Uh, you're talking about sociopaths really that they have de- they have a defective emotional intelligence. They don't have true empathy. They have a manipulative empathy. And by the way, there's a premium on that in politics. I'll say no more about that.
0: <laughs> All right. As we close out this interview, I'd love to understand from you why emotional intelligence is so important to society as a whole, because I know there's some really interesting things in terms of crime rates related to EQ and, and just different ways that it can impact society in ways that people didn't necessarily think about before.
1: Well... My view is that a more emotionally intelligent society would be a better world to live in, which is why I'm really a a big advocate of teaching this in school to kids so they get it right in the first place. Because think about it, people who can manage themselves better, uh, who can tune in and care about other people, who can get along with other people and help them as well as themselves, uh, those are the kind of people you want to go through life with those are the kind of people you want in your family as a partner. Those kind of people you want as a co-parent, the kind of person you want in your business, as your business partners, as your employees, as your bosses. So I think that it's emotional intelligence really is a recipe for a better society.
0: And then in terms of the data, how does EQ translate into organizational performance in, in areas like sales and leadership
1: and things like that? Oh, yeah. Well, I'm just pulling together. a 25 years of studies that show that uh, being emotional intelligence makes people better in sales for obvious reasons, uh, better leaders, better team members and organizations that have a culture of emotional intelligence do better by hard measures like profit and growth.
0: Love that. All right, so I end all of my interviews with the same couple of questions and then we do some fun things at the end of the year with them. So what is one actionable thing our listeners can do today to become more profitable tomorrow?
1: Manage yourself better. Keep your eye on your goal. Don't be so distracted.
0: Ooh, I love that. And what is your secret to profiting in life?
1: Care about other people. Be open be empathic, but be caring.
0: Great advice. And where can our listeners go to learn more about you and everything that you do, Dan?
1: Well, I do have a podcast. It's called First Person Plural. uh, And uh, I welcome you there. I have a newsletter. It's free on LinkedIn. And I update what I'm thinking about on the newsletter. I have LinkedIn blogs. And I just started a new organization called Goldman Consulting Group. Uh, and you can find me there too.
0: Awesome. So we'll stick all those links in the show notes. Thank you so much, Dan, for your time and your wisdom. appreciate it.
1: Thank you. Wonderful talking to you. What a pleasure.
0: Wasn't that an amazing show? Daniel is awesome and I'm super thankful he took the time to chat with us on Young and Profiting Podcast about how we can all improve our EQ. And it is super incredible that we get to learn from the guy who is considered the father of emotional intelligence. In fact, I've had several episodes on EQ and every single conversation, we cite Daniel's work because he is literally the man when it comes to emotional intelligence. And we covered so much in this episode, from the history of emotional intelligence to its relationship with mindfulness and Meditation, and we even dove deep into brain biology and how to emotionally recover from an argument. This episode is certainly worthy of a repeat listen, and I do want to take a minute to recap some of the key takeaways. First off, Dan described the emotionally intelligent person as having four traits self awareness, self management, empathy, and social skills. Number one, people with emotional intelligence are good at understanding their own emotions. That's self awareness. Number two, they're good at managing their emotions that's self-management. They're also empathetic to the emotional drivers of other people, social awareness or empathy. And lastly, they're good at handling other people's emotions, also known as social skills. If you feel like you're lacking in any of these areas, don't worry. Daniel shared that we can literally reshape our brains and improve our emotional intelligence. That's neuroplasticity. How fascinating is that? So let's review Dan's steps for developing EQ. Number one, assess your motivation. Consider your goals and how the situation will impact whether you achieve them or not. Number two, ask for people's honest opinions of your strengths and weaknesses. The fact is how you see yourself differs greatly from how others see you. And you can use this feedback to be the best version of yourself. And lastly, the third step is to practice. Repetition is key. The more you practice certain sequences, the stronger the connections will become. So for example, if you practice letting your negative thoughts and emotions go, it will become easier and easier for you to do so. So give these steps a try and remember that repetition is key. And lastly, a new term that I learned in this episode and loved was cyber disinhibition. We sometimes say things online that we would never say to someone's face. And this is a result of not having that emotional face-to-face connection. We hide behind our computer screens, keyboard warriors, so to speak. And sometimes this means our empathy and restraint gets tossed out of the window. So as communication keeps creeping more and more into virtual spaces, just remember to pause before reacting out of emotion. You can even think of the image of Dan's stoplight. Red for stop, yellow for think, and green for give it a try. Maybe even step away from your phone or computer and spend some quality time in the parasympathetic mode, aka get relaxed and get into a relaxation mode before you respond. Just think of what a world it could be if we all worked a little harder to improve our emotional intelligence. We all need a little more understanding and support in today's world. And that starts with us young and profiter's leveling up our EQ. So let's get after it. Hit that share button and send this episode to a friend and take a minute to drop us a five-star review if you enjoyed this episode. And if you haven't heard yet, I'm now partnering with Slick Text, which means you can now shoot me a text message and receive messages from me. You'll also gain access to exclusive YAP content. So just text the keyword YAP to my short code 28046. That's Y-A-P to 28046. So what are you waiting for? Hit me up on text. And as always, you can tweet me or shoot me a DM on Instagram or Twitter at YAP with Hala or find me on LinkedIn at Hala Taha. Thanks so much for tuning in to Young and Profiting Podcast and big shout out to my YAP team. As always, this is Hala signing off.